Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Tonight, starting with verse 25, then said some of them of Jerusalem, is this, is not this he whom they seek to kill? But, lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. And so you must understand, as they're making reference just to Christ, uh, they're talking about the Messiah, all right? Uh, Christ literally meaning, you know, the anointed one. They're talking about the Messiah when they just reference Christ. They've not yet uh, made this total marriage of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, all right? And so just to keep us aware of that. Verse number 28, Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Another little side note on the whole Christ thing. Christ isn't Jesus' last name, okay? I'm just saying. We take it for granted, but Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Christ is more so office, you know, in particular. It's not his last name. And so just kind of throwing that out there for anybody that may have never picked up on that before. Verse 30, then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hours was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man, speaking of Jesus, hath done? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. There will be more portions of chapter 7 we'll get into tonight. But I want to talk to you about come unto me. It's kind of centered around the whole phrase whenever Jesus is a little later in like verse 37 is at the feast. And he says, come to me all you that are you know, thirsty and so on and so forth. But everything's kind of wrapping around that tonight in a certain degree. Come unto me. Hallelujah. Father, we come unto you tonight. God, with prayer, with supplication, with thanksgiving. God, we worship you and praise you, Lord Jesus, in this place and on our minds. Grant us understanding, Lord God, for your word this evening. God, the teaching of your word. God, let it find itself, Lord, bedded into our hearts and our spirits. Help us to learn thereby, grow thereby, and live thereby. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen. God bless you tonight. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. And that's a grand courtesy on Wednesday nights, right? Halfway through your work week. Amen. So everything that's taken place that we have been reading to you in John chapter number 7 is taking place during one of the feasts, one of the many feasts of the Jews. This happens to be during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, whenever uh, the numbers in and around Jerusalem as it would be during any feast, increases and intensifies because people are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And so what we have here is the Jews are convening at this sacred city of Jerusalem, and many of them that are convening here, as we said last week, uh, live other places. They don't necessarily live in Jerusalem, but they live in other places, but nonetheless, they are still Jews, yet they are coming to Jerusalem because of the festival. 
And so those that are not in the thick of the day-to-day life of Jerusalem and are truly visitors and that is not their, their home or where their house is. Many of them are not aware of the fact of the upheaval that's going on in the city and the roundabout area about this man, Jesus, all right? And about a possible plot that may be out there uh, to kill him and to take his life. So, however, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those that do live there and call Jerusalem their home, they do have a good handle on, on some of the commotion that is stirring among them and that's been created in the city about how people are truly seeking for the life of Jesus. And uh, whenever we say seeking, as we've seen early on even in this chapter, uh, whenever this festival came together, even before Jesus ever arrived, it seems like people are seeking for him. And not in a positive way either. You know, there's some people you seek because you're like, hey, how you doing? And there's other people that these, as these are, they're seeking for vengeance. They're seeking for, you know, to do some type of cruelty unto the Lord. And so it surprises some of the Jerusalem uh, natives when they heard, as we saw last week, that Jesus is standing up here in the middle of God and everybody in the temple. (laughs) Never mind. In the temple, and he is teaching. He is teaching the people. I'm really trying a hard time to get over that myself. All right. He's teaching in the temple because while he's doing this quite of a public demonstration of teaching in the temple, uh, there is no ruler, there is no officer that's seeking to apprehend him, to take him, to uh, put him in his place or take him away for slaughtering or for killing as, as the wish it would seem is among the city of Jerusalem. I mean, the fact of the matter, if he's public enemy number one, if, if, that's, if that's like the mark upon him, at least in the city and town, uh, and he's making himself known in a very public place, such as the temple, then it, it seems that nobody's concerned. No one's, no one's got, you know, handcuffs. No one's about ready to take him. Nothing's being done. And so since there's this sense to a good portion of the people that nothing is being done, and this is the individual that there's a commotion about that they're wanting to apprehend, then they start proposing some things in their mind that maybe some of the rulers and some of the leaders have decided that this man is the Christ, you know? Maybe, maybe they've, they've come to a general consensus that this man is the Messiah. And yet while they consider this and they, they ponder upon this thought about uh, him perhaps being the Messiah, maybe they've accepted that, then they begin to also toil within themselves of how there's been some teachings and some understandings among them that they thought that whenever Messiah would come that no one would truly know where Messiah came from. And we know this man, Jesus, and we know where he's came from. And so uh, if Messiah is supposed to be one that kind of just appears and shows up, so on and so forth, then how can this be the man when we know where he's come from? So they start battling these things in their head. And because they know Jesus, right? And I air quotes for the word no. They know Jesus, right? I mean, they know where he's come from. At least most recently they know and you look at this in the beginning of the chapter, uh, chapter 7, they know that Jesus has come from uh, the region of Galilee, all right? Other people 
uh, that live in and around Nazareth know a little bit more about Jesus. They are acquainted even with his mother Mary, and they know his father, all right, not biological father, but they know, at least in their eyes, they might assume as much. But nonetheless, they know his father to be Joseph. They're acquainted, those that would be in the city of Nazareth, which is in the region of Galilee, know that he has brothers and sisters. Jesus had brothers and sisters. I know, I know Brother Mason has, has uh, Alex Mason has treaded some of these waters in youth class, all right, about half-brothers and stuff of Jesus going on, so this should be unfamiliar to our students. The Bible says in Mark 6 and verse number 3, he didn't just have brothers, he had sisters too, all right? The Bible says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother James and Joseph and Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. So they know Jesus. They know where he's come from. They, they know some of his family. But according, according to an article in Jews for Jesus, that's a website, nonetheless, and this isn't anything that's just some just wild knowledge, but I try to quote sources if I ever come across it. Nonetheless, they speak of how Jesus' formative years, and we know this according to Scripture, from the book of Matthew, were spent in Nazareth, all right? Nazareth was in a region called Galilee, just like there was a region called Judea, all right, which Jerusalem was in. And so he spent many of his formative years in Nazareth. And as a result of that, and we'll look at this a little bit later tonight, as a result of a bulk, and I do they say bulk, of his formative years and time of life being spent in Nazareth, you know, many people believe that that was also his birthplace. As a result of that. As a matter of fact, whenever uh, Nathaniel came to Philip in chapter number one of John, and he was going to introduce Jesus unto him, uh, he tells him about this, this man that is from Nazareth, so to speak. And uh, Nathaniel even says, Can anything good come out of can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so we have, of course, in the Old Testament, Old Testament prophecy that foretells about the birth of Jesus Christ, which we'll look at a little bit later. And if I'd ask anybody tonight, where was Jesus born? I, I, I have faith and confidence that most of you would say Bethlehem. All right? But we have Old Testament prophecy telling us that. But there must have been a segment of people that was not, was not steeped in the in the teachings of, of the First Testament, of the Old Testament, and they were under the impression that no one would know where the Messiah came from. They would not know uh, his location. And I guess, in some respects, they were right. I say that by meaning this, because many people put the Messiah in this stereotypical box. They put the Messiah in this ruler type of personality box that when messiah come he's coming with the strong arm and the strong fist he's going to be the ruler he's going to bring and restore all things back to israel the way it needs to be restored he's going to be like some type of military force we got problems with phones in my mind mind making a sound too <laughs> amen uh, they, they they believed that he was going to come with some type of military uh, force and restore the kingdom of israel but in reality we know, according to God's word, that he was born in little Bethlehem. The Bible speaks of, even in Micah, that Bethlehem was that, that little town. That, that he came in little Bethlehem and he was laid in a manger. And he was born into a human family. Let's go a little bit deeper there. He was born into, the Messiah, was born into a human 
family that had suspicious overtones of being impure. What I mean by this is Mary was with child before she was with Joseph. Woohoo! Right? And so, <laughs> so you have this going on, and then on top of that, most of his childhood, most of his childhood up into his public ministry, which really didn't start until he was about around 30 years old, was spent once again in Nazareth. All right? And so, whew, you know, uh, you have this concept of Messiah, all these other things about Jesus, who was the Messiah, doesn't seem to be stacking up too much to the concept and idea of what they thought the Messiah would be, should be, where he came from. I mean, spending most of your days in Nazareth, uh, wait a minute, the reason why uh, one of the disciples said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth wasn't very well uh, uh, spoken of. Nazareth was a very secluded and isolated place. It lied in a basin, a very low area. Uh, it had a, a reputation uh, of people that, that, that didn't have good morals and, and, and kind of irreligious. They didn't have religion. And so this is the place that, you know, Jesus comes from. This is the place the Messiah is heralding, you know, uh, heralding from. He spent most of his days there in a, a society of immorality. I mean, start to do it in your head and think for a moment. This, this is where our great Savior's coming from, <laughs> you know, somewhere that's irreligious. They don't have, you know, necessarily any type of religion, full of wickedness. Yeah. And so whenever Jesus comes from Galilee and he comes from Nazareth, that place, uh, the people then are like, here comes Jesus. Again, in their minds, you know, we got Messiah and we got Jesus. These two don't coincide. They don't mix. They're, they're totally two different, you know, individuals uh, to begin with in their mind. But whenever Jesus comes, they're like, yeah, we know him. We know him. We know that he, we know where he's from. He's from that low-down, good-for-nothing city of Nazareth, you know, over in Galilee. We know him, but the fact of the matter is this. Within what they knew was something also unknown. Within the known was uh, unknown. Because they thought they knew where Jesus came from. But in reality, they didn't know where he came from. Right? Because Jesus responded to them even. He told them. He, he was kind of a little bit in agreement with them. He says, you do know me. You know Jesus. What he's alluding to is this. You know me. You know, you know fleshly Jesus. You know fleshly Jesus. You know me as the man, Jesus. But there's something that you don't know. You don't know the one who sent me. She was commissioned by the Spirit. She was commissioned by God himself. He says, so you know the man, Jesus, but you've not yet totally wrapped your mind around this Jesus as God or this spirit side of me. So they knew the man, Jesus, but they were missing, they were missing God. And they were Jews. They were Jewish people. They knew Jesus the man, but they really didn't know Jesus as God. That, some of that light bulb moments have not yet happened yet for them. And so, uh, you know, in Old Testament times, and even over in the Middle East, even common as it still yet is today, in order to establish the, uh, whenever someone tries to establish the origin of an individual is part of establishing the identity of an individual. What are you saying? I'm saying what happens today a lot of times whenever we first meet people, some of the questions that are batted back and forth between two people is this. Where are you? You fill in the blank. Exactly. Happened then in the Middle East. Still happens today. Still happens for Where are you from? And a lot of times if it's men, the second question is this. What do you do? 
Isn't it amazing our lives just boil down to where we come from and what we do for a living? That's the reason why some people have identities that are lost. Because apart from those two things, they are nothing. But that's a story for a different time. But nonetheless, so they come, where are you from and what do you do? And so Jesus has tried. He's really tried over and over again through times that he's had conversation with different ones. In some of the previous chapters, he's told them, I've come, I come from heaven. I came down from heaven. They're like, you're the man Christ Jesus. You're the man. I came from heaven, but he tells them over and over again. And so we have Jesus is according to Scripture. Jesus is given birth location, geographic birth location. Yes, Bethlehem. But his humanity stems from the fact According to Galatians 4, 4, that he was made of a woman, all right? His humanity stems from the fact that he was made of a woman. But he came, according to Scripture, he came from God. Jesus even plainly says in verse 29, I am from him. But here's the fact of the matter. We get a better grip on his identity once we realize where he truly came from. And I'm not talking about Bethlehem, although that helps if you pair it with prophecy, but from the fact that he came from God. He was that God, as, as 1 Timothy uh, 3.16 says, he was God manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, so on and so forth. Whenever we get that of where he really came from, then we get a better grasp of his identity that he's more than a man. Mm -hmm. he's more than the carpenter's son he's more than the son of Mary he's more uh, spent j more than just his few you know days up on the earth mostly in Nazareth amen and so here's the fact of the matter though right because these are Jews these are people that's very much so acquainted with the law and the law of Moses and the prophets and Jesus has even explained this to more than once that yeah we're in agreement that the law and the prophets all this speak you know about God and it's God's law but Jesus also tells them the law and the prophets and all these things they also say a lot about me and so if you're really a student of the law if you're really an abider by the law he says then surely you're going to have to come to an epiphany and recognize that I am the God that was spoken of in the Old Testament and I am the Messiah that was even prophesied of then if you are a student of the law as you say you are because they took great pride in saying that they knew the law and the things of the law and yet they missed the identity of who Jesus was so they sought to take him that could almost be the theme of chapter number 7 over and over again they sought to take him more than once this is expressed in chapter 7 and yet the Bible almost like a little postscript each time tells us but no one laid a hand on him they sought to take him but nobody laid a hand on him because his hour was not yet it was not yet time for him to be apprehended it was not yet for him to fall into the hands of wickedness it was not time yet for a trial or a crucifix or none of that it was not his time and for that matter here's something else that takes place with them seeking him but not laying a hand on him you know what that did that afforded a lot of people more time to change their belief about him we stand in a, and I don't call it a predicament, but we stand in similar grounds right now. He could come back at any moment. It's imminent. Everything, anything that needed to happen has happened in reality. As far as for the rapture, he could come back at any moment. But it's not happening yet. If that's the case, then I believe we stand in a very similar spot then for him not being taken for crucifix prematurely. 
It's so that someone might change their belief concerning him. Somebody to change their belief concerning him. Amen. And so this seems to be somewhat of a purpose throughout the Gospel of John because if you'll remember, he's wanting people to believe that he is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing that they'll, they'll have salvation through his name. That's the key verse of all of John found in John chapter number 20. And so this whole concept then is there is this lingering, if you will, of him not being taken, though people really want to take him and seek him out, is because... Because he's not being taken yet, other people's hearts are flipping in their belief where they used not believe in him. Now they are believing in him. And hopefully it can, and not hopefully, but it will absolutely revolutionize their lives. So he wants people to believe in him. He wants people to make the connection that this Jesus that they see just as a man is the Messiah that's to come to be the salvation of the world. He wants them to have salvation through his name. He wants all of that. And so his hour's not yet. They're seeking to take him, but they're not because God has a bigger plan and a bigger desire for people. And the Bible tells us very plainly in the Scripture that as a result of all of this, like verse 31, and many of the people believed on him. No one's taken him. They're seeking to take him. But as a result of all this, some people, many believed in him. And they were convinced. You can look at it in verse 31. They were convinced then that Jesus was the Messiah, so much so. They, were, they, they became so convicted that he was the Messiah that they came to this place, and I love this. They're like, this, this guy, Jesus, I mean, he seems like all of that plus the side of fries, you know? He seems like the Messiah. We're, they're so convinced that if he isn't and the Messiah that comes, what is the Messiah going to do that's going to top what? Really? If he's not it, what, what's the next quote-unquote Messiah going to do that's going to top what this guy's done. You know what they've come to a conclusion of? It doesn't get any better than Jesus. I like that. I like it. They came to a conclusion. It doesn't get any better. Boy, it would be good to somehow become convinced in our spiritual lives. You know what? It just doesn't get any better than Jesus. I don't, have a, I don't have a longing eye left or right or anywhere else because somewhere along the way I've just come to an understanding. I've seen what he could do. I've felt his touch. I've experienced his power. Sister Milan, I'm just confident. They're telling me maybe there's something better, but if there's anything better, how's it going to top this? There is anything better than Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah! Whew, I feel the Holy Ghost in that. There's just something about coming to the knowledge of who he is, what he is, what he has the capability of doing in our own personal life. There isn't, I'm, I'm convinced, there isn't anything better than Jesus. And the Apostle Paul even gave witness to the same after the purpose of Jesus Christ was already revealed on the earth. So we're way further into the gospel story and way further even into the epistles. But he said in Romans 1 and verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed. He said of the gospel of Christ. He said, for it's the power of God and the salvation. And to everyone, look, that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I understand what it's been for me. It's the power of God into salvation. To others, it's foolishness. To others, it doesn't make sense. To others, it's unintelligible. He says, but to me, that's been a believer and an experiencer of it, he says, it's the power of God. You know what he came to conclude? And it doesn't get any better than Jesus. It does not get any better than Jesus. And so even at this point of the, of the preaching of the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus, again, to many, Jew and Gentile, to them it was foolishness. 
But Paul said it's foolishness to those that are perishing. Mm -hmm. It's foolishness to those who have a negative idea concerning the Lord. Mm -hmm. That's not one to accept the concept, the idea, the power, his revelation, his purpose, and those that do not want to accept, it's foolishness to them. He said, but to believers, to believers, to the saved, it is the power of God. Here is the fact of the matter, folks, that I am convinced tonight in the church of this is that once you let Jesus Christ into your life and truly allow him to have a foothold in your life, you will come to an agreement that it doesn't get any better. The believers get it. Huh? Those that have truly surrendered. I want to underscore that. Those that truly have surrendered to Him get it. It doesn't get any better than Him. That's the testimony of believers. That's the testimony of those that have opened themselves up unto the Lord. Well, if there's people talking about Man, I believe this is the Messiah because if there's anything else coming, I can't see how I can get any better than him. That got the ears of the scribes. That got the ears of the chief priests. That got the ears of the Pharisees. Because they're thinking, whoo, we got ourselves a ruler on our hand then if he's the Messiah. We got ourselves a, a figure of authority and a power on our hand if he's the Messiah. So why does that concern Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, let's talk about it just for a little bit. Everybody doing all right? The Pharisees, you see these people show up many times in Scripture. Pharisees and, and uh, Sadducees are Jewish people. They're just like two different people groups, all right? Two different, two different clusters of groups within the Jewish community. And so Pharisees were, were quick then, in verse 32, to go forward and influence the decision of the chief priests, which were predominantly Sadducee people, to go, to go influence their decision we need to find some officers now, send them over, and take this man Jesus. Why? Because in their minds, too much impact is going on. There's, there's too much sway going on. And I mean, there, we got people talking about him being the Christ, and him being the Messiah, and uh, we got to do something about this, boys. Quick. So you just keep that in the back of your mind. We'll probably get to that next week, but just in the back of your mind that they sent officers to take this man when we've already had a lot of people that sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. So the Pharisees, listen, the Pharisees were just good middle-class Jewish people, okay? The Pharisees were good middle, just good middle-class Jewish people. They, they believed that God gave them the written law that was handed down to them through Moses. They believed that God gave them even their oral law or what was oral traditions that were just passed on verbally from generation to generation. They believed, the Pharisees believed, that anybody who wasn't a Pharisee was considered unclean. So like the Pharisee was the... They were, they were middle-class people, but they were top dog spiritually, you know. <laughs> they were. And, and, and anyone who wasn't, they were considered unclean. And, and the Pharisees held not just to the written law of Moses, but they held to their own quote-unquote traditions. Right? They had some stuff that they kind of included and made up and additions to and, and so on and so forth. And so they held to their own traditions. And according to one, one scholar, he said that they had the greatest influence upon the congregation. 
so that all acts of public worship and prayers and sacrifices were performed according to their injunctions, meaning whatever they said concerning prayer, sacrifice, and all that, that's what went. They kind of had the, the leg or hand up on everybody. And so the, 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 it's not like they were a big group of people, all right? But you don't have to be big in order to be influential. So they might not have had a lot of numbers, but they were influential in so much what do they do? The Pharisees hear about this Jesus Messiah perhaps stuff, and what do they do? They go to the chief priests and say, you need to go sin. Some temple. That just shows their influence within itself to be able to address the, the, the chief priests and say, you need to go take care of this Jesus guy. And so the Sadducees were known many times to follow the demands of whether the Pharisees were saying because the Pharisees had the sway of the people. And if I'm a chief priest in a quote-unquote religious kind of political spot, I want the sway of the people. So what's the best way to do that? Rub shoulders with the Pharisees who have the sway of the people. Yes, we're talking about politics in Scripture. <laughs> I'm just saying, this is as old as Jesus' day. <laughs> Amen. And so they wanted the sway of the people. Now the Sadducees, mind you, we're just educating you right now about Pharisees, Sadducees. Everybody doing Okay. The Sadducees, mind you, was a little bit more of a liberal group. <laughs> Just say it. Amen. They believed the written law, except big capital letters on that except. Except they were willing to incorporate Hellenism. And what that meant was they were willing to incorporate Greek culture. And they were willing to compromise, if you will, their lives in some of the Greek ways of living. And so these are the Sadducees. So here you have two people groups. Pharisees just by means of their way of life being very influential. So with influence comes power, of course. Certain measure of authority. Then you have Sadducees who labeled our chief priests, they're the Sanhedrin, power and authority, right? But then, and, and you have some compromise in both one. Pharisees are kind of leaning toward their tradition. Sadducees are kind of leaning toward, you know, the Greek culture and Greek way. And then you have this Jesus figure walk in. Who they're saying is the Messiah. Who, according to the Pharisees, they believed that God would even send this individual and he would bring peace to the world and he would rule from Jerusalem. But Jesus is coming in and what's he doing? We see it many times in Scripture. All the time, he's exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. All right? And he challenges often the authority of the Sadducees. Matter of fact, there's many times he tells them, woe unto you, you hypocrites. Many times. Why? Because, yeah, they wear their long robes and they say their long prayers in public. What they're doing is they're, 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 they're doing an outward performance they're supposed to be the epitome and the standard of a moral character. But they're hypocrites. They are just appearing to be something on the surface, but underneath they're really... He even talks about them being whitewashed tombs. Trying to make it look as good as possible. But inside it's dead men's bones. So he's calling them, he's calling them hypocrites. So the fact of the matter is this. Jesus coming in and he's challenging the power of the Sadducees and, and he's, he's calling the Pharisees hypocrites. Here he's coming in, Messiah or not, which he was, but Messiah or not, Jesus is threatening both the Pharisees and Sadducees' power and he's undermining their authority. 
Because what? Jesus is speaking to people saying, he speaks as one that has authority. The Pharisee and the Sadducees are like, that's us. We're the authority. We're the power of the matter. But they're really just a bunch of hypocrites. They're really just a bunch of people that are compromising some of the good morals of God's teaching. And so people are starting to believe that Jesus has this power and this authority. So what does that do? That threatens the Pharisees and the Sadducees altogether. No wonder. They're like, we need to take care of this Jesus business as quick as possible because it threatens my station here among Jerusalem and even within the government of Rome. And it threatens the Sadducees, you know, spot even within the government and the mentality of Rome. Huh? Because the hardest... Really, it's the story of still yet life today. Because we don't like to be under authority. We like to be in authority. I'm, I'm killing deer up here. Got me a big buck with six points. <laughs> it is the story of today repeated, folks. Their power and authority felt threatened. And they're going to take Jesus out because they don't want to lose authority. You know the reason why many of us want to go on and compromise and live as hypocrites? Because we don't want him to be the authority in our life. Yep. We want to be our own authority. We want to be the only power that has any say. Oh, I'm teaching and preaching right now, folks. I came in the back door, but we're doing it. Look at John 33. Let me read a little further. So they send the officers to take him, and they're kind of, it's, it's, it's just kind of like a real good story. There's more than one thing going on at the same time, okay? So you've got to keep up with it. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while I am with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whether, shall, whether will he go? That we shall not find him. Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this that he said, Ye shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am thither ye cannot come? Verse 37. These, are, these next few verses are very popular. In the last day, the great day of the feast, that's the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. If you ever wondered why we sung, out of your belly, that's where it comes from. There's a lot of things that we sing lyrically in churches that a lot of people don't know that it's scripture. Okay. So nonetheless, shall flow, flow, flow. Oh, anyway, uh, belly shall flow river, rivers of living water. Verse 39. But this spake he of the Spirit. This is in parentheses, just kind of a side note. That everything that Jesus is talking about here, this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. It will happen. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given at this point because Jesus was not yet glorified. And that glorification is speaking of his, his death being lifted up on the cross. All right? So that, he says all this. Now, <clears throat> Jesus made it known that he was only, as he said, I'm only here for a little while. But he would return to where he came from. He would return to whom he had come from. And so the, the people begin to speculate about where he might go. Where's he going to go that we can't go? 
where's she going to go that we can't go? And so the Jews began to think a little bit, is, is he going to go to uh, some of these other Gentile nations where some of the Jews have dispersed and he's going to talk to the Jews and some of these Gentile nations? Or, and then the thought hit them. Or is he going to go to the Gentiles? Because that would be a bad, bad, you know. Really bad for them. Could he even go to the Gentiles by all things? So they're, they're entertaining all these ideas. And what they weren't getting is that Jesus is doing a little foreshadowing here for them. Jesus is referencing a, a little bit the fact that he's going to die. He's referencing the fact that even after that resurrection from the dead, that he's going to ascend into the heavens. I'm going back to where I came from, right? Uh, because in the beginning, he was just the word. He was, he was just the thought and the, the, the logos in the mind of God, so to speak. He said, I'm going back to where I came from, right? And uh, yes, just as a side note, he would eventually be preached among the Gentiles, though. He would do that. But here's what, here's what I want us to get at here tonight. So Jesus is alluding all through John 7 here, or John's alluding all through John 7, about people seeking the Lord all right, seeking the Lord. And what I see Jesus is doing with all of this, they're, they're, they're seeking him, they're not laying a hand on them. He kind of turns this whole seek mentality up on his head because he's now trying to compel them to seek him in a way that they haven't sought him up to this time. What are you saying? I'm saying, look, if you look at verse 1, they sought to kill him. You look at verse 11, the Jews sought him at the feast. You look at verse 25, they seek to kill him. You get this? You look at verse 30, they sought to take him. You look at verse 33, they sent officers to take him. But in verse 34, Jesus says himself, ye shall seek me. They, they recall what he said in verse 36 and says, ye shall seek me. Now here's the thing. We have this word sought or seek that's used multiple times in John chapter number 7. In the Greek, it's not two different words whenever Jesus uses it or when they use it. It's not a different word. But the Greek word is ambiguous. And what I mean is this. It has a couple different meanings that are a little contrary to one another. In one sense, to seek in the Greek means that you are seeking in a bad sense to like plot against somebody's life. Like a lot of these formative seekings up until verse number 34. Sought to kill, sought to take. Bad sense, plotting against Jesus' life. But the exact same word is used. Jesus uses himself, that ye shall seek me. And another meaning of the word, same Greek word seek, is this. It means, and it's a little bit of a, uh, a phrase among the Hebrews, it means to, to seek specifically to worship God. I think Jesus is turning this seek, seeking, sought thing up on its head. You've been seeking me in this way. But there's going to come a day that I'm going somewhere that you can't go. Hmm. I'm going somewhere where you can't go. And in that moment, you're going to seek me. Whew. But it's not going to be in the way that you have sought me up to this time. You're going to be seeking to find me for the purpose of worship. Because at that point in time, after death, burial, resurrection, ascension, everyone's going to know that that man, Jesus, whew, hmm, 
is the one that we were looking for. Because remember what the Scripture says in the epistles. Had they had known Him, they would not have crucified Him. He says, you're seeking me in one way now. He says, but in that day, whenever you're going to, whenever I've went somewhere that you cannot go, you're going to be seeking me. In the, you're going to be seeking. Jesus wanted them to know that though they sought him in a particular way now, they would desire to seek him differently later. Amen. They seek now to take his life. But there would be a day in the future coming when they would seek to worship him. Hmm. Oh, can I tell you, we need to be in the, the mode right now that we go on and seek to worship him. Amen. Everybody that's wishing to deject the Lord, do away with the Lord, who cares about the Lord, there'll come a day that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess of things in heaven, things in the earth, and things below the earth. That, what are you saying? There's going to come a day they're going to seek him, but it's going to be in a whole different a whole different manner. And right now, here's the fact of the matter. Jesus, the man, he is before them. Right now, they have access to him. They're seeking to take his life, but no one can get it accomplished. But later, they're going to be seeking to worship him, but he won't be visibly before them now as he is, then as he is now. The Bible says, what's the old prophet Isaiah said? He knew what he was talking about. Isaiah 55 and verse 6, he says, Seek ye the Lord! While he may be found, call ye upon him while he is near. And so, with all of this proper understanding of seeking and sought, so on and so forth, Jesus stands at the last day of this Feast of Tabernacles. And he cries unto the people in earshot of him, and he says, come unto me. He is beckoning them for an already alteration of their seeking mode. Don't come unto me for the purpose of taking me as far as to do something wrong. Come unto me for worship. Come unto me because against what you really may think, I have something to offer you. <laughs> Seek me now in the right way. Seek me now with the right motive. Why? I'm here to quench your thirst, right? I'm here to quench your thirst. It's, it's interestingly, if you note this, this is kind of interesting here, that Jesus goes from talking about being somewhere they cannot go, right? Basically departing from them, being somewhere that they cannot go or they cannot find him to the fact that he is now talking about coming into him getting water, wells of water in their bodies that he's likening unto the Spirit, which is the Holy Ghost. So what he's marrying together is his departure, but also this Spirit coming type of scenario. What in the world are you talking about, Brother McGee? Because we know, we know according to God's Word, and we'll look at some scriptures. i got a lot of scriptures here in the end. We know according to God's Word. That the coming of the Holy Ghost or the coming of the Spirit is paired with the departure and the ascension of Jesus. Very close. Because the Holy Ghost can't come, he told them. The Comforter can't come, he says, unless I depart. Hmm? So Jesus is saying right now, he says, I'm going to go somewhere where you cannot come. Right? And then he starts talking about coming to me. Here's the Spirit of the Lord. It's going to be given to you. I'm talking about the Holy Ghost. It's not yet given because I've not yet been glorified. I've not yet went to the cross. But he's marrying together again this idea of departure of him, but the coming 
of the Spirit. The Bible says in John 16, verses 5 and 7, here's where uh, reiterated in the Gospel of John that the Comforter does not come until Jesus goes away. The Bible says, but now I go my way to him that sent me. This is Jesus speaking. But now I go my way to him that sent me. Isn't that what Jesus was speaking about even in John 7? He says, I'm going to the one who sent me. That's what he told them. And now he says, that it's happening right here at this moment. But now I go in John 16, 5, but now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me, whither goest thou? Verse 6, but because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient. It's necessary. It's needful from you that I go away. <laughs> for me to go away back to the one who sent me. To me to go away where you cannot presently go. It's needful for me to go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, which we read in the scripture in, in John 14 and John 16, which is the Holy Ghost, he says, will not come to you. He says, but if I depart, I'll send him to you. Hallelujah. He says, boys, you need to be seeking me now in a good, proper way. Because if you'll seek me now, I'm going to leave one of these days, but I'm not leaving you without a comforter. I'm not leaving you without, I'm not leaving you without the Holy Ghost. I am going to depart. The physical man's going to depart. But the Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost. <laughs> the humanity of me is going but the divinity, the God side of me is not going to walk with you, but it's going to be in you. But I got to go in order for it to come. Hallelujah. So come unto me. Seek me in a proper way, in a proper motive. And so he's calling on the people here. This is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, all right? This feast was a time uh, of, of when uh, the, 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 the Israelites or the Jews would live in these leafy branched uh, shelters and houses, and they do this. Every year they do this. They still do this. And it's to remind them how God was there for them and how it was whenever uh, they left Egypt and they traveled in their wilderness journeys with rude and crude tents and, and places of shelter. So they will retreat again and they will make shelters and they will make them very crudely. And what that's supposed to do is for them to remember those days shortly after being released from bondage. How God was their care and God was the one they leaned upon. And so there's, there's entire Jewish towns that will coincide and go up to Jerusalem for tabernacles uh, to celebrate it. And it coincided with one of the harvests of the year of grapes and olives. And so it ran for seven days, and on the eighth day there was a big celebration. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, this is what you got to get. During the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light these large candlesticks again. It was for a reminder to the people that they were led by a pillar of fire by night. It was a reminder to them for them to uh, remember their ancestors long ago who were led those 40 years through the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night and they would also go down to the pool of Siloam and they would get a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and they had a big old march back to the temple and there was celebration and all types of things going on and they would take that, that, that pitcher of water and they would pour it on the ground and what that was supposed to do is to remind the people of the present age how they drunk from water that flowed from a, wall, a rock during their wilderness journeys. Big deal. Well, you got to understand, it's the last day of the feast. It's during the time when they would normally pour that pitcher of water on the ground to remind them 
of the water that they got from a rock. So what? Jesus is saying, if any man thirst. When they're trying to remember about water they got from a rock, Jesus is saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. Now look at this. This is in the epistles, but this was commonly uh, remembrances that the people held during the Feast of Tabernacles. You can find similar reflections in Nehemiah chapter number 9. These were some of the things that they reflected on and thought about even during the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 10, and I, I know I'm, I'm, my mouth is running here. It's because I'm excited on the inside, and it's, it's showing up in my mouth. Amen. And so it says in verse number 1, the apostle says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did eat the same spiritual meat. He's talking about that manna that fell and that quail that came and did all drink, look at it now, the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Woo! That rock was Christ. The anointed, that rock was Christ, Messiah. They are at the Feast of Tabernacles. They pour the water on the ground and they're remembering the water that they got from the rock. The Apostle Paul says when we remember that, that rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ. Now here is Jesus on the Feast of Tabernacles when the pitcher is to be poured out and he says blatantly, if any man thirst, what's he saying? He's saying you're looking at the rock right here. You're looking at the one that can, that rock that quenched your thirst in the desert is the same rock that's standing before you right now. That one that gave you spiritual drink during 40 years in the wilderness I'm trying to give you a spiritual drink right now come unto me seek me while I yet may be hallelujah someone say amen the rock in the wilderness quenched their thirst Jesus said come unto me I'll quench your thirst he would be the spiritual drink right it's kind of interesting he said because it'll be as rivers of living water flowing from your belly folks had it not been that long ago over in John 4 that he told this lady at a well about if you'd asked of me to drink I'd given you living water I put a well in you be living water be unto everlasting life. So once again, I'm getting there. Once again, look what Jesus has done. He has superimposed himself as everything that Israel throughout the generations had grown dependent upon. What I mean by this is this, and I don't have them all that we've covered thus far in John, but just a few of them. Jesus has conveyed to them that he is Jacob's ladder. We've already seen this. That he is Jacob's ladder from the vision that Jacob had. He is that ladder that rests up on earth but extends to heaven. There's a lot in that. Because he is the link. Jesus was the link between heaven and earth. Because he's the God-man. 
Oh, heaven help us. He, he, he expresses to them that he is the brazen serpent that Moses lifted up on the pole just as he would be lifted up on the cross, that whoever would look upon it would be made whole of what plagued them and received their healing. Oh, my goodness. He has he superimposed himself upon the fact of being the manna. He talks about himself being the bread from heaven that satisfies the longing of their life. And for that matter, manna was available every day of their life except on before the Sabbath. It was twice as much so that they would have some for that day. In other words, he supplied every day's means. He's superimposing himself on that. For that matter, he imposes himself on the water pots of purification that he used in his first miracle. He superimposes himself upon the fact of being the temple, telling them that though it be destroyed... I'll raise it back up. And he was really alluding to the temple of his own body. But they had their minds raised. Hallelujah. Now he's superimposing upon them that he's the rock in the wilderness. That's providing water to all who are thirsty, all who will come. Listen, he's not going to force feed anybody with the water. <laughs> it's like some of those mother. Uh, no, I'm. This has nothing to do with Natalie. It's not like some of those mothers, and they got to plug it in. You know, the kids scream, just plug it in. You know, it's like, Arr! he's not force feeding anybody. Come unto him. You got to seek him. And so, what he offers here in John 7, again, is no different than the living water that he's offered the Samaritan woman in John chapter number 4. He offered her, had offered her a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And here he offers rivers of living water flowing out their bellies. And if you'll stand with me. And yet all of this relates to the Holy Ghost. You hear me? All of this relates to the Holy Ghost. He said, because it will be given, you can see it there in, there in the verse, that they that believe on him, verse 39, they that believe on him should receive for the Holy. He's talking about the Spirit. He said, which they that believe on him should receive. Everybody say, should receive. This all relates to the Holy Ghost being given to those who will believe. And the context of belief in John that we've looked at on several times, and I'll say it several times till we get to the very last verse of John 21, is that believe in John is those that trust in him, commit to him, rely on him, obey him. The Holy Ghost is given to those who believe. Note this, and I'm trying to get there. Just let me read some more Bible because it's good. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Many of you could quote this. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Look at this. I go to prepare a place for you. Hold on, departure. Going somewhere right now that you can't go. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you into myself. That, oh, look at this. Wait a minute. You can't go there right now, but that where I am, there ye may be also. Look what he starts to tell them. And whether I go, ye know. What? What, Jesus? Nah, we don't know. Yeah, whether I go, ye know, and the way you know. What, Jesus? Uh-uh, no, no, no. Thomas says in verse 5 unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest. That's the idea. And how can we know the way? 
I like it. Verse 6, Jesus said unto him, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man come unto the Father but by and he go down to verse 25 and he says these things have I spoken to you being yet present with you I've said all this while I've been here but I'm going to depart <laughs> he says but the comforter which is the Holy Ghost whom the Father will send in my name shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance and whatsoever I said unto you the Holy Ghost will do this for you now listen they thought I'm closing I know I've been long I knew it was going to be long I just didn't tell y'all they thought they said, well, you know, it's going to be long every time you stand up, Pastor. They thought they knew where Jesus came from, but they really didn't know. And they couldn't go with him when he first ascended, of course. Matter of fact, he told Mary she couldn't even touch him because he had not yet went into the heavens to present himself as that slain sacrifice, Right? With the blood and all this thing, he, you know, he was operating that role of the high priest, and the high priest couldn't be touched, and, and there's a whole lot of stuff you could talk about there. All right, so, so they couldn't go when he first ascended. And they thought, we don't even know where he's going. And we don't know how to get there. <laughs> but he's crying, come unto me. Why? Because the amazing thing about Jesus Christ is that he's not just a voice crying. He is the destiny and he is the route. He is the location. They said, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. He says, I'm the location and, and I'm the journey. He is the all in all. He is the Messiah. He is the way to God. He is God. And they must seek him. Not in a malicious way, but seek him to know him. And the power of who he is. Whew. Hallelujah. Can we bow our heads all across this place tonight? We got to come to him. We got to come to him. Even in this day. Oh, Brother McGee, yes, yes. Even in this day, we must come unto the Lord. We need to seek him in a meaningful way way we need not to we need not to assume the position of the scribe or the pharisee we don't need to assume the position of some hypocrite that gives some type of surface if you will display of something and behind the scenes it really is not what it appears to be and we don't need to fall in line with a sadducee that's trying to always strike a bargain and a compromise with cultures that are diabolical to the will and the purpose of god and we don't need to always assume their place that we are we are if you will the pushers of our own life and no one's going to tell me what to do i'm the authorities no 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 you need to let christ rule and reign in your life and let him become master and us become the servant and we just seek him so that when he departs and he has already sent his spirit if we're a partaker of that that where he is we may be also Hallelujah. Can we raise our hands all across this place tonight? Father, we need you. Can you pray to the Lord here just a little while as we get ready to dismiss Father? Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.